Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. History Hit and Assassin's Creed presents Assassins vs. Templars. Real histories of the secret orders. Welcome to the inside of one of history's greatest stories. I'm Matt Lewis, and in this collaboration between Ubisoft and History Hit, we're taking you back to the very beginning. The story of Assassin's Creed is one of deadly rivalry between conflicting ideologies that asks whether peace is found through freedom or control. It began with Assassins and Templars racing to gather the pieces of Eden in the fiery heat of the Near East amidst brutal religious upheaval. We're all Desmond Miles now, and we've found our animus. A team of the best historians working in their fields will unlock the memories of the past for us. They'll lead us through their secrets and introduce us to some of the real people who inspired the game. It's time to break into the vaults of two of history's most infamous organisations as we pit the Assassin's Creed against the Templar Order. In this episode, I'm joined by John Withington. John is an award-winning television broadcaster and journalist who is particularly interested in disasters, both natural and otherwise. His most recent book, Assassin's Deeds, a history of assassination from ancient Egypt to the present day, was released in 2020. Thank you very much for joining us today, John. Pleasure to be here. It's wonderful to have you. So I guess we're talking around Assassin's Creed here, Altair's campaign to assassinate the right people during the Third Crusade. And we think of the assassins, but they weren't the first and they certainly weren't the last either. Can you give us an idea of how early in history we can trace back the idea of assassination for political reasons? The first assassination I could track down was a pharaoh called Teti, an Egyptian pharaoh, who died in 2333 BC. Now, we have circumstantial evidence and some written evidence. So a historian did write that he had been assassinated, but that historian was writing about 2,000 years after the event. So about halfway between where we are now and when Teti died. It could be, of course, that he was drawing on sources that we've since lost. So we've got his account. There's also some circumstantial evidence, which is that a lot of senior officials from Teti's court had their memorials defaced. And this was a terrible punishment in ancient Egypt because it meant you would wander homeless through the afterlife. And if you look then in the Persian kings, between 550 and 330 BC, of 13 Persian kings, 11 were murdered. So I think it's reasonable to assume that as soon as there were people in power or authority, you had assassination. And the fact that we know about ancient Egypt and Persia is probably just to do with the fact that they had better records. It kind of begs the question whether there's ever not been assassinations. I think that my assumption would be that 
as soon as there was organized society with some people in power, there probably was. And I think that there was an American anthropologist who examined an Egyptian cemetery which dated back up to 14,000 years. And he found that 40% of those buried there had evidence of wounds from sharp stones. So sadly, I think the world's always been a violent place and assassination's probably always been part of that. Why has assassination always been a popular tactic throughout history? We see in the Crusades in particular, the assassins, if we can still call them the assassins, are famous for sneak attacks, for infiltrating. And if you play the game, it's all about sneaking around, driving from a high distance and assassinating someone by shock. But why has it always been popular? Does it contain this element of fear, confusion and everything else that we can add to the death of a political leader? Well, if we go to about a thousand years before the assassin, so around the time of Christ in the Holy Land, there were a group called the Sicarii. And they're pointed to by a lot of people as, if you want to use this terminology, the first modern type terrorist group. And they were trying to resist Roman occupation. And their method was literally cloak and dagger. So they hid daggers beneath their cloaks and they liked to strike their victims at big public festivals for two reasons. One, that they felt this was This gave them a good chance of escaping by melting away into the crowd. But secondly, because they felt it enhanced the propaganda value of the killing, that it was more scary if the killing happened in full view of lots and lots of people. And I guess we see that a bit in the game as well. Some of the assassination attempts there are required to be at public events, which, as you say, makes it more shocking, but also, I guess, increases your chances of escape, which must be in the assassin's mind. You don't necessarily want to die in the attempt if you can avoid it. No, you know, you obviously got, in more recent times, you've got suicide bombers who um, plainly don't think they're going to escape. And I think if you look at the history of assassination, there's probably quite a lot of occasions. For example, the, the people who killed Tsar Alexander II in Russia in the 1880s, I think they, they probably pretty well knew there was a very slim chance that they would escape. To, to be an assassin, you've got to be willing to accept a personal, a, le- a level of personal risk. So can we talk a little bit about what we would classify as an assassination? We have plenty of murders throughout history that we don't necessarily call an assassination. How, maybe when you were writing your book, how did you define an assassination as one that you would look at? Yes. So all assassinations are murders, but not all murders are assassinations. And the definition that I took was that assassination was the killing of somebody rich, powerful, or famous because they were rich, powerful, or famous. But I also excluded people who were already held captive by their opponents. So, for example, Edward II, I wouldn't count him being assassinated. He was murdered, but he was already in the power of his opponents. Do you think there are categories of reasons that we might be able to divide assassinations into? So in the game, Altair is given 10 people he has to assassinate for specific reasons. But do they happen for kind of, is it about revolution? Is it about specific policy? Is it about revenge, personal hatred, or a mixture of those things? Well, I analysed about 260 assassinations. And you're right that motives are complex. And of course, motives are often mixed. There might be a political ideology might be an element, but there might also be an element of revenge or fear in the same assassination. So it's quite difficult to come to firm conclusions. But for what it's worth, of the 260 I looked at, about 127 were 
some sort of political ideology. In the early years in particular, dynastic ambition was very important. So rather than overthrowing a particular form of government, it was more, I'd like to run this form of government rather than the person who's running it. So there were 44 that were what I would call dynastic ambition. They, of course, were very often murders within the family because it was very often a brother, a father, a son who was doing the killing. Um, religion was important in 24, but anger and resentment was was important in 29. Um, there was a man called Edward the Martyr, King of England, who was killed in 978. Now, Edward the Martyr was now a saint. He, he was rather odd saintly material because he had a terrible temper, uh, and he managed to annoy an awful lot of people. And he was murdered by relatives of his younger brother. And one of the motives may simply be that an awful lot of people hated him. But you talked about fear earlier, and interestingly enough, fear actually can be quite an important motive for assassination. Um, so the Roman emperor, Volusianus, was killed by his own troops in 253 AD. And that was simply because they didn't want to be led out to fight against a usurper who was trying to get his throne. They thought they'd probably lose, so they killed him instead. So almost assassinated him to save their own lives. Yeah. You can almost encapsulate the entirety of human nature within that list of reasons to assassinate someone, can't you? Fear, ambition, greed, or a desire for change. Revenge, yeah, Revenge absolutely. Well, yeah. So in the game, the, the chosen tactic is normally to, to assassinate by a hidden dagger, so a dagger that pops out the sleeve at the last minute by which you assassinate someone. Do we see different methods of assassination that are perhaps aimed at achieving different ends? Well, certainly we see that the methods of assassination change. You wouldn't be surprised about that. But one of the things that struck me was how long stabbing remained the preferred method. So for quite a long time after firearms appeared, stabbing still remained the chosen method. And it wasn't really until the 19th century that firearms took over. And, and even when firearms took over, it tended to be the handgun at close quarters rather than the sniper's rifle. So I suppose if, if we think of assassination in fiction, the book that often comes to mind is The Day of the Jackal. And of course, he is a high, very high quality sniper, isn't he? But actually, Snipers were very, very rare. Um, I looked, there were about 230 assassinations where I could work out, was it at close quarters, was it at distance? And only 19 of those, actually, were done from distance. So, yes, the firearm changed the method, but in terms of the modus operandi of the assassin, if you like, very often it still required you to get up close and personal with the victim. Do you think that had much to do with the reliability of firearms? Because it took a long time for them to become anything like reliable, whereas a dagger in your hand, you know exactly what you're doing. I think that's almost certainly true. Yeah, I think that's almost true. If you're going to take true. the shot, you don't want to miss. If you've got a dagger, you're getting close enough to do the job properly. Correct. And can you give us a few examples of some of the assassinations that really stuck out in your mind from your research, from your book, some, some detail of how the assassinations took place and what they were assassinated for? Could I talk first about one that struck me as perhaps the weirdest of assassinations? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> well, in 995, there was, um, in Scotland, the succession was not arrived at by getting the eldest son of the king to take over. So what happened was that the person chosen was chosen from amongst all the male relatives, the adult male relatives from previous rulers of Scotland, from previous kings. 
this was not having the eldest son succeed was supposed to have the advantage that you didn't get an infant taking over with all the potential disorder that could bring. The downside was you got a lot of rival claimants. And King Kenneth II of Scotland wanted to try to secure the throne for his son Malcolm to secure the succession. But there were plenty of other people who fancied becoming king. And one was a man called Constantine the Bald. And um, Kenneth II uh, was out in Aberdeenshire one day and he was accosted by a woman who goes by various names, but something like the Lady Finella. And the Lady Finella wouldn't be thought to be well disposed to King Kenneth because he'd had her son executed. Anyway, she went up to the king and said, look, um, you know, I know I was a bit cross with you about having my son executed, but fair dues. I, I recognise that, you know, he, he'd done wrong. Um, and just to show that you don't bear any ill will to me anymore, would you come to my house? And the king was a bit iffy, but she said, she whispered in his ear, if you come to my house, I will give you the names of all the people who are plotting against you. So anyway, so the king is eventually convinced and he rolls up to the lady's house and on the table is this very nice statuette of a little boy. And the lady Finella says to the king, um, if you touch that statue, something really funny will happen. So the king again was a bit iffy, but he thought, well, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? So he touched the statue and he was immediately hit by a volley of crossbow bolts because it had been booby-trapped and it had been connected to hidden crossbows all around the room. After a little while, the, uh, the king's retinue a bit worried about why he hadn't come out and what was going on. So they broke in, found his body. The Lady Finella had probably sensibly made herself scarce. She ran off. They apparently cornered her at the top of a cliff above some water and she dived into the water and was killed rather than surrendering. Constantine the Bald did manage to get the throne, but then he was defeated by Malcolm, King Kenneth's son, uh, who took over the throne and ruled for about 29 years, I think. This story may be true or maybe not, but it's a good story. It's a cracking story. I mean, there's an awful lot of thought gone into there into building a statue that's rigged to connect to crossbows to try and assassinate the king. Yeah, I think the connecting up to the crossroads probably is quite an engineering feat, yeah. From that sort of era... Well, let me try you out on something. Suppose I told you about a very senior churchman who fell out with his king and annoyed his king so greatly that while he was conducting a church service, he was murdered. I'm going to say Thomas Beckett. And that would be a very good guess. And the only thing that doesn't quite fit in the story is that Beckett was actually preparing a church service, I think, when he was killed. But So no, so actually, I'm talking about Bishop Stanislaw of Krakow, who was murdered by the Polish king, possibly even by the Polish king's own hand, or certainly at his instigation. But you're absolutely right. It could, of course, be the story of Beckett. And I think that illustrates the fact that what you've got there is you've got these two very powerful institutions, the church and the state, probably the two most powerful institutions in England at that time. And Every now and then, these tensions are going to boil over. And Beckett's murder, of course, you know, he'd fallen out with the king. He'd been in exile in France for six years. Henry II managed to persuade him to come back. But when he came back, Beckett seemed completely unrepentant. He started sort of flinging around excommunications of all his enemies. He got a hero's welcome when he came back to England. And he milked that by taking the most roundabout route he could to Canterbury. So this was all irritating the king. And perhaps on Christmas Day itself, the king said words to the effect, you know, the usual formula is, isn't it? Who will rid me of this troublesome monk? Something of that kind. Was that just 
an understandable expression of exasperation by a man known to be hot-tempered, or was it an instruction? Anyway, four of his knights took it to be an instruction and cornered, confronted Beckett in his cathedral and then killed him. And one of the things that Beckett's story illustrates is the law of unintended consequences. What was the effect of him being killed? Made him a martyr, made him one of the most celebrated saints in Christendom, meant that Henry couldn't push through the reforms he wanted, which was basically to make sure that clergy who had committed crimes would be tried in civil courts, not church courts, had to give that up, um, and spent most of the rest of his life fighting civil wars with his sons. I have to say I'm convinced by the theory that Beckett kind of wanted to martyr himself, that he set everything up. Uh, it bears very strong resemblances to Christ taking in the Garden of Gethsemane, the way Beckett seems to stage manage that. It's like he almost stage managed his own assassination for his own reasons, which, as you say, were the unintended consequences that of what Henry did. As we move on through time, do we find that there are assassinations with better records? Are there things that we have more details of that are perhaps more recent? Yeah, so when I was doing my statistical analysis, if you want to call it that, up to about the 19th century, I analysed virtually every assassination that I could felt that I could find sufficient evidence about. By the time I'd got to the modern age, there were just so many that I just had to choose 100 to do. So yes, obviously, everything is much better documented, isn't it? And maybe that's allied to the thing that we were talking about with the Sicarii, you know, Josephus, a historian writing at the time of Sicarii, said although their killings were damaging, it was the terror that those killings generated that was far more damaging. And so in the 19th century, you began to get this idea of the propaganda of the deed. So it's not that ideas create assassinations, but it's assassinations can create ideas. So this idea that the proletariat is kind of slumbering, not realising that it's oppressed. And so if we can do something like assassinate the Tsar, as we as happened in the 1880s, then maybe that awakens the consciousness and the proletariat will rise up. So rather than an assassination aimed at achieving a specific end, it's aimed at sparking something else. Yes, I think assassins have obviously often been disappointed. I mean, if you going right back to Julius Caesar, one of the most famous assassinations in history, I suppose, the conspirators, Brutus and Cassius, believed that if they killed Caesar, the sort of the Roman Republic would sort of somehow spontaneously kind of regenerate. And of course, that didn't happen. Instead, you got 14 years of civil war, which ended with the opposite, if you like, of the Republic, with the Roman Empire being created. I only ask about record-keeping because in the game, one of Altair's targets, William of Montferrat, his son, Conrad of Montferrat, was actually assassinated while Richard I was in the Holy Land. And it, when Richard is captured on his way back to England, part of the reason for his capture is given as being behind the assassination of Conrad of Montferrat. And we get the old man of the mountains, the head of the assassins, kind of writes to the Holy Roman Emperor and says, no, Richard didn't engage me to do this. I did it off my own bat kind of thing. But we just don't have the records to understand how much of that is true, how much of it was propaganda by Richard's enemies and how much of it might have been true. So it must be nice when you get into a time when there's a bit more record keeping and you can see a bit more clearly what's happening. Yes, I, th I think that's true. And I mean, just going back to the assassins and their relationship with the Crusaders, uh, you know, it's quite, it, it's quite a striking coincidence, isn't it, that the the assassins appear about the end of the 11th century, about in the 1090s, and then... Ten years later, the Crusades start, and the 
great historian of the Crusades, Stephen Runciman, said that the, assass the presence of the assassins was enough to stop there being a coherent Muslim response to the Crusades. And of course, the majority of the people that the assassins killed were fellow Muslims, but they were from different sects, different parts of the religion. The relationship with Crusaders is an odd one. I mean, they help the Crusaders indirectly because if they're killing prominent Muslims, that helps the Crusaders. But they also does appear to have been a business relationship at times um, where they were prepared to take on murders on behalf of the Crusaders. And there's a famous story where they killed the king-elect of Jerusalem about the end of the 12th century. He was only about the second major crusader figure that the assassins had killed. And so there was a big meeting, you know, they just thrash it all out. What on earth's gone wrong here between the assassins and the crusaders? And the assassins allegedly said, look, we're sorry, that was a mistake. But just to make it up to you, we will kill anybody you care to name free of charge. And of course, they were in real life very worried about the Knights Templar. You know, the assassins saw the Knights Templar as among the most dangerous enemies they had. And there was one occasion where a delegation of envoys from the assassins had been meeting the Crusader King, and they were all butchered by the, um, the Knights Templar on their way home. And then there was also the Knights Hospitaller who appeared as a similar military order. And I think the assassins ended up paying tribute to them and also doing the odd murder on their behalf. It kind of plays into the reality that the game pits the assassins against the Templars. There is a real rivalry there in the Holy Land. And I think it is interesting that Nizari assassin clan kind of mirrors the dates of the Crusader states almost exactly. It arrives just before and it ends around about the same time. And as you say, some of the targets in the game are Muslims as well as Christians. And I think if you didn't know too much about it, that might surprise you that Muslims are actively attacking Muslims at a time when the Holy Land is under threat from Christianity. But again, that plays into the real history that quite often the, the assassins were at odds with other Muslim sects rather than Christians. And of course, you had a similar thing happen with Christianity sort of four or 500 years later when you get the wars of religion and the Reformation 1517. And I think, as I mentioned, that religion became a very important factor, a very important motive for assassination. One of the impressions that did sort of come across to me is that those motivated to assassinate by religion tended to be more ruthless than those motivated by politics. I wonder if there's an element of believing you're securing a place in heaven. Quite possibly. Ideally. And also maybe, particularly when, you know, heresy was such a thing and the feelings were so strong about that, maybe it's also easier to believe that your opponents are thoroughly evil and have no redeeming features. So I guess having terrified everybody about the fact that political assassinations of all kinds have happened for millennia, not even just centuries... Are there any proven ways that someone might seek to protect themselves or foil assassination attempts? Do we see people surviving maybe more than one? The most consoling thing about assassinations is most attempts fail. That does make me feel better. <laughs> in terms of how you protect yourself, one of the things that strikes you actually when you read back in history is how careless by modern standards some of the victims appear to have been. So Abraham Lincoln, the night he was assassinated, Good Friday, 1865, his regular bodyguard was off on a mission somewhere else and he got a kind of stand-in bodyguard and Lincoln appears to have let the bodyguard go off for a drink and there was no bodyguard on duty when John Wilkes Booth went into his room to kill him. So bodyguards is one thing you can use. They're not foolproof. So Tetty, 
was said to have been killed by his bodyguard. And he certainly reorganized security, palace security. There's no doubt that a lot of bodyguards do act with enormous courage and do help to keep safe the people they're protecting. So Benazir Bhutto, there was a, an assassination attempt on her in 2007. 50 of her security guards were killed. And of course, she was then later assassinated herself. But bodyguards can be a danger as well, as we saw with Teti. And up to 15 Roman emperors were killed by bodyguards or by troops loyal to them. And if you come forward in time, of course, you've got Indira Gandhi, who was killed in 1984 by her bodyguard. There are things, there's technology things like armor-plated cars. Edward Shevardnadze, when he was president of Georgia, survived an assassination attempt thanks to his armor-plated car, but they're not foolproof. There was a German industrialist called Herrhausen who was murdered by the Red Army faction, even though he's in his armor-plated car. I think Machiavelli said, the best way of keeping yourself from safe from assassination is to make sure all your people love you, but that may not be too easy to achieve. And yet we also know it's impossible to please all of the people all of the time. (laughs) It's a difficult circle to square. And I guess in the game, you know, part of what players have to do is to infiltrate situations and get under the skin of people and situations. And there's a famously recorded case of assassins going to visit Saladin. And, you know, he sends away all of his bodyguards, except the last two who he most trusts, at which point the assassins say, what would you do if we asked you to kill Saladin? And they both say, we'd kill him because we're assassins. So I guess there's an element there of always, even bodyguards, you have to be wary of who they are. And as you say, they're absolutely no guarantee and they could be your worst enemies. Yeah, well, there's a story that Saladin was saved from assassination because he wore a chainmail cap under his turban. And I think, as you know, the uh, the assassins wanted to kill him and made a couple of attempts. And there was this famous episode where he was sleeping in his tent one night, awoke in the middle of the night, saw a figure creeping out of his tent and There pinned to his pillow with a poisoned dagger was a note saying, you are in our power, and some cakes of a kind apparently that only the assassins made. But I think one of the attempts on Saladin illustrates another feature of the way the assassins operated. So when the attempt was made to stab him in the head, which was stop his cap of chainmail, The assassins who tried to do that had been fighting in his forces. They'd signed up for his forces, had fought with great courage and considerable distinction. And he was at an event to reward them for their bravery. So this business of deep cover, because again, with one of the assassinations they did of a crusader called Count Raymond of Tripoli, that's Tripoli in Lebanon, not in Libya. But I think the two assassins had actually uh, gone undercover for a long time, had even got baptized. So they were prepared to take what sounds like quite a modern tactic, doesn't it? Being, if you like, I guess a sleeper, and of going into deep cover, being very patient, awaiting the right moment to strike. In Assassin's Creed, Altair is tasked with killing a sequence of 10 people. His aim is to get to Robert de Sable, the leader of the Knights Templar, but he has to kind of perform these other nine to get him access to Robert de Sable. So do we ever see a series of assassinations as a way to eliminate allies to get to the main target? Well, certainly you see quite a bit of what I suppose we might now call collateral damage. So the 266 assassinations I looked at, 38 involved significant collateral damage, significant other casualties. And the first crusader killed by the assassins, Raymond of Tripoli, 
the assassins had to kill two of his knights to get to him. Probably the biggest example of collateral damage, or one of the biggest anyway, was the assassination of Rajiv Gandhi, former Prime Minister of India in 1991, by a suicide bomber. She killed 25 other people. There's a very famous story from Japan about the 47 samurai. There was a a senior shogun official who ill-treated a samurai to such a degree that he committed harikiri, killed himself. And then that samurai's followers decided they must take revenge on this shogun official. And to get to him, they had to kill 16 of his men. They did manage to kill him, but then all 47 of them were instructed to commit harikiri, apart from one who was spared on account of his youth. It's currently a famous Keanu Reeves film, 47 Samurai. It's been filmed on a number of occasions and there are books. Yeah, it's a very, very important part of Japanese history and folklore. And perhaps a parallel from which the game draws the idea of having to kill this sequence of people to get to the main target that did happen in history. We can see clear parallels. You mentioned a little bit earlier the kind of the law of unintended consequences when assassinations take place. Do we see frequent unintended consequences? What kind of thing might they be? If you take what are perhaps, well, certainly three of the most famous assassinations in history, Julius Caesar, Thomas Beckett, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, all of them had unintended consequences. Now, of course, there's an argument about whether the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand actually caused the First World War. And it was indeed 39 days after his assassination that the First World War broke out. But certainly that's one of the assassins felt, because one of the assassins said, if I'd known what our deed was going to lead to, I would have sat down on my bomb and blown myself to bits. So I think it was Gandalf, I think, in The Lord of the Rings, who says, they're talking about should they murder Gollum? And I think Gandalf says something like, you need to be careful about this kind of thing, because not all ends are known, even to the wise. And societies are very, very complicated things, aren't they? And predicting the consequences of killing somebody are very, very hard to do. So I think unintended consequences is very, very common. Do we ever see examples of that being taken into account? Are people ever aware? I mean, I guess the unintended part suggests that they're not, but are people ever aware that there might be bigger, wider, deeper consequences to what they're about to do? Or do they tend to be focused on their very particular reason for wanting to assassinate someone. I suppose that if you've gone ahead with the assassination, you've probably had to have convinced yourself that on balance it's worth it. One thing I tried to do, and this is obviously highly subjective, I tried to work out whether, as it were, assassination worked. So if the people who did the assassination had known what what was going to happen, would they have been happy with it? This is obviously an extremely subjective judgment. But for what it's worth, I felt that I'd got enough information in 215 cases. And I reckon that in 132 of those, people would have been, on the whole, happy with the outcome. In 83, they would have been unhappy. Of course, all the assassinations worked in the sense that the victim was dead. But interesting that over half probably worked out the way the assassins hoped or would have been happy with. It wouldn't be true to say that in all of those cases, it worked out exactly as they would have expected. But I felt it was kind of near enough to the objective that they would have wanted to achieve. So I suppose that's a slightly depressing figure to set against the one that most assassination attempts fail. 
we'll stick to the most fail as our consolation from this episode, I think. But thank you very much for joining us, John. It's been an absolutely fascinating tour of assassination as a weapon and as a tool of political terror. Thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. In the next episode, I'm joined by Mike Carr of the University of Edinburgh to discuss the fall of the Templars. It's our last episode and we've saved the most pivotal moment in the Templar story to the very end. Make sure you're following the Echoes of History podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss it. And you can listen to the rest of the series there too. This series is a special collaboration between Ubisoft and History Hit with post-production undertaken by Paradiso Media. Thank <laughs> you.